Do you like free stuff? I do. BlueprintMCAT.com. Go sign up for a free account. Get access to Blueprint MCAT's Diagnostic, Blueprint MCAT's Full Length One, Blueprint MCAT's amazing brand new space repetition platform with over 1,600 flashcards already made for you, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Schedule out the content so you know if you are on track to take the MCAT when you need to. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com for all of those free goodies. The MCAT Podcast, session number 201. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT. The MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Welcome to the MCAT podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and this is episode 201 of the MCAT podcast. This week, we're diving into Blueprint MCAT Full Length 1, Cars Section, Passage 5. Let's go and jump right in. Phil, back with another MCAT podcast after last week, last two weeks, just getting completely destroyed by the, the cars section. I think I'm I'm back. I'm in the game. I'm ready to destroy. Uh, yeah. And I, I promise I didn't cheat. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, okay. I, didn't, I didn't cheat. Uh, so we're going through Blueprint MCAT Full Length 1, which you get for free by signing up for all of the free goodies that Blueprint has to offer. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. You can click on that and get all this stuff for free. So uh, please, please tell me that this week is less abstract and more <laughs> actually concrete. It is, it is less abstract. The last two, I think, were probably the two most abstract passages in the entire exam. They just happen to be back-to-back. Mm. Um, so this next one's quite a bit easier. Um not not quite as abstract about like what is the nature of like digital humanities and the way we look at it and that sort of thing. Yep. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, it's a little bit of a history passage here. So by the early 19th century, English English industrialists were no longer even considering the possibility of a labor shortage. Malthusian ideas had reached such popularity that it was assumed that geometric expansion of the lower classes would always provide a ready supply of cheap labor. Yet. By the late 1860s and early 1870s, limits on the labor pool began to surface. The labor movement designed to protect workers' rights began to alter the texture of the relationship between industrialists and workers in a number of ways that reduced the available labor pool. Child labor laws reducing the availability of very young workers, trade unions designed to protect workers, and competition from other sources of employment. So just kind of a big picture saying that at the beginning, we thought we'd never run out of workers. And then they're like starting to unionize and child labor laws and like, okay, we need more workers um, that the industrialists are looking at that. Um, Something I will throw out. So Malthusian like theories, he's like quick sidestep. 
um, like the Malthusian view of economic expansion is something that the AAMC requires you to know in the psych social section. Um, and so I expect that most students should have an idea of what that is. Um, I'm going to talk about it, even though in the car section, you need to <laughs> not bring in that outside knowledge. Um, so the Malthusian idea is just that the um, population will increase exponentially forever until we're all starving to death because there's not enough resources. Um, <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's not it's not a lot of you know, sunshine there. Turns out not the case. A lot of societies, their populations will plateau or maybe even drop like Japan's in the case of down. Japan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so we thought at the beginning we'd have an unlimited supply of workers. Turns out that's not the case uh, once you hit like 60s and 70s, the 1860s and 1870s. So as far as the availability of workers, the labor movement had its largest impact in England through limiting the number of hours a worker could be required to work in a day and eventually in a week. Concern about worker exploitation resulted in the Trade Union Act of 1871, which legalized the formation of unions. Rather than immediately demand increased pay or safer working conditions, the unions first moved to limit working hours. In response, employers began employing round-the-clock shifts for the first time in their production centers. Another associated limitation was the increase in worker pay that allowed more households to survive on a single income. Many young women who, are, who, pre, who had previously worked alongside their husbands in factories began leaving the workforce to bear and raise children. So a lot of things going on here. They have to start doing shifts. And now, like, that's also going to cut into your worker pool if before the husband and wife both had to work and now only one of them has to work. So to solve the problem of shortages in the labor pool, industrialists near the end of the 19th century generally took one of two paths. All right, I'm immediately like trying to separate these two paths, but contrast, I care. Mm -hmm. So pull these. So increased efficiency or labor pool diversification. The usual diversification path was what we would now call outsourcing. Although in the 1890s, this meant moving factories out of England to Ireland or Scotland rather than to another continent. While Scotland was and continues to be under the purview of the Parliament of the UK and thus subject to the Trade Union Act of 1871 and this other Act of 1875, the militancy of labor movement activists was notably attenuated outside of the London area manufacturing centers. So basically these laws, despite applying to the entire country, really only applied in London. Yeah. Um, the, the efficiency path, which is the other side, um, on the other hand, sought to get the largest possible amount of productivity from each work hour. This approach included everything from technological advances to make manufacturing machines more efficient, improvements in machine design to allow faster, easier, and more effective worker movements, what we would now think is ergonomics, to simply pushing workers harder with both incentives and punishments. Um, and so in order to get more out of their workers, they would outsource or they would just make their people really efficient. Yep. At the dawn of the 20th century, more and more manufacturing forms or firms moved towards efficiency rather than diversification. Nonetheless, this move was hampered by repressive laws in both Ireland and Wales that made it difficult for labor unions to organize and effectively lobby for better worker protections. I do want to kind of like pause here. This says the move was hampered by repressive laws. That's the author thinks they're repressive. And so we care a lot about those, like the author's viewpoint. So that's something that's kind of like putting up alarm bells in my head. Several high rank uh, or several high profile bankruptcies by companies that had invested heavily in efficiency improvements, almost entirely unrelated to the improvements themselves, also scared some from pursuing this path. 
shareholders and financiers concerned with the next month rather than the next decade, then as now, um, often discourage plant operators from making heavy upfront investments and changes to machinery and policy that would have allowed better production even with reduced labor hours available. Despite these trends, England remained well ahead of manufacturing efficiency in both the U.S. and continental Europe, with the average English factory worker producing nearly $6.50 in value for every $1 paid, a ratio nearly double the averages elsewhere. So despite all these issues, the, the like companies in England were still making a lot of money um, after paying their workers. Yep. So. There we go. Um, a little bit more of a history passage, just like a bunch of details. Want to like latch on to those contrasts, right? Like these two different viewpoints and like the pros and cons of the efficiency method, which they go into in the last paragraph as well. Yep. So Ooh. question 24. Yep. The passage suggests that the Conspiracy and Protection of Property Act of 1875 was intended to A, protect the interest of large property owners. B, Prevent labor union organizing by labeling it as an illegal conspiracy. C, protect the interest of workers. D, help industrialists increase profits by creating more favorable labor conditions. All right. So I'm trying to find this Conspiracy and Protection Act. And... It's in the third paragraph, about halfway down. Yeah, but it doesn't really define it. It just kind of lumps it in with this other one. So that's, oh man. So it says, uh, while Scotland was and continues to be under the purview of the Parliament of the United Kingdom and thus subject to the Trade Union Act of 1871 and the Conspiracy and Protection of Property Act of 1875, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't define the act. So how am I supposed to know what it's for? So um, the idea is like what you were saying a moment ago, like, oh, this one kind of got lumped in with the other one. And they do give you more information about the other act. Yeah. So the Trade Union Act, as I almost fall over standing here, um, this, is how, <laughs> this is how scintillating this passage is. Yeah. Um, so the, the Trade Union Act of 1871 legalized the formation of unions. That's what it did. Um and it worked uh, to start um, the unions moved to limit working hours. Okay. So protect the interests of large property owners. B, prevent labor union organizing by labeling it illegal. Protect the interests of workers or help industrialists increase profits by creating more favorable labor conditions. So if it's lumping it in with the, the trade union act, then it's going to be to protect the interests of the workers. Yeah, exactly. The other thing to note is I also feel like A, B, and D are all kind of saying the same thing, um, where it's like helping the people who own the companies, yeah, right? Prevent unions, protect large property owners, help industrialists. All those kind of seem kind of similar, and so I want to lean a little bit away from those. Okay. All right, question 25. Suppose new data were discovered revealing that the average U.S. factory worker actually produced over $7 in value for every $1 paid in wages near the end of the 19th century. This new information would, A, be irrelevant to the author's main discussion, B, undermine the central assumption underpinning the author's argument, C, further strengthen the notion that workers in continental Europe were particularly inefficient, or D, somewhat undermine the author's point about child labor laws. 
All right, so D out the window. <laughs> There's really nothing there. Um, yeah. So the the question comes to what's really the author's main discussion here, and the author's main discussion was really highlighting, as far as I know, um, what these companies were doing. They either increased efficiency or diversified their labor pool, and it was using Europe as an example and showing the the increased efficiency and and highlighting. Um, how they were able to increase efficiency by showing that that $6.50. So I don't think it really matters. It's just showing, hey, this is just another example of efficiency being um, rolled out in the US versus Europe. It's not, the author didn't say, oh, Europe was the best in the world at doing this. It just said it was, it was good and better than a lot of places. But um, yep. so I'm going to go with A. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, it is a, um, I mean, there is like the last sentence of the passage talks about England remaining well ahead, uh, of the U S but like this question is about the end of the 19th century. And so by then it might be like, maybe that like, wasn't still the case. And even then the whole passage is really about just what's going on in England. Like if something went well in, you know, Philadelphia, that doesn't really mean like what's going on in England is any more or less valid. Yeah. Um, yep. Very good. All right. I'm liking this one better. Yeah. Question 26, which of the following paths would most likely have pushed manufacturers more strongly towards an efficiency path? A labor laws in Scotland and Ireland, reducing the length of the workday to fewer hours than was permissible in England. B Irish politicians and lawyers having an increasing tendency to look the other way when confronted with labor law abuses by fa- factory managers. C, a baby boom in the early 19th century, creating a large pool of able-bodied adults in mid to late 16th or 19th century in Scotland. And D, increasing educational attainment by English women in the 19th century, having no effect on overall fertility rate well into the 20th century. So looking at the passage, right, the, the dichotomy was efficiency versus diversity. Right. And, and if I want to rephrase the question, it's saying which one, which of these answers would push more towards diversity in, or efficiency instead of diversity? Right. So answer choice A, labor laws in Scotland and Ireland reducing the length of the workday to fewer hours than was permissible in England. Well, of course you want to be efficient during those reduced hours. Um, but that potentially would also increase the need to diversify and and um, get labor outside of where you are. So I don't know if that is Well, they do mention the right Scotland answer. and Ireland in the passage. I think it's in this third paragraph. They, they talked about how uh, the laws really weren't enforced there. Yeah. Well, they were saying the diversification path is what we would now call outsourcing. Although in the 1890s, this meant moving factories to, to Ireland or Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, B, Irish pol- politicians and lawyers having an increasing tendency to, quote, look the other way when confronted with labor law abuses by factory managers. And so this is basically saying, okay, we have these laws, we're going to ignore them. So we don't need to be efficient. We can just work our people harder. So 
Yeah. That, that doesn't seem to be the right answer. C, a baby boom in the early 19th century, creating a large pool of able-bodied adults in mid to late 19th century in Scotland. So again, having more people to work, you don't need to be efficient. That was the, the whole point of the passage was we assumed that we were going to have lots of people to do all the work, so we don't need to be efficient or look at other places to do the work. So that doesn't make sense. D, increasing educational attainment by English women in the 19th century, having no effect on overall fertility rates until well into the 20th century. I have no idea what that matters in this answer. So um, B, C, and D don't seem like the right answers. A, I don't really understand it, but that's the answer I'm going to give. Yeah. So the idea is we were diversifying by pushing people to Ireland or Scotland. And if all of a sudden Ireland and Scotland had the same or even worse working laws, then like, I don't want to send my people there to work because that doesn't help. Um, that's why I had them leave England and go to Scotland is because they I was able to do all the illegal stuff there with my workers. Um, and so if all of a sudden Scotland and Ireland don't allow that either, then why am I outsourcing? That seems like a waste of time and energy. So I can't do the diversification path, which means I have to do the um, efficiency path mm. in that case. Yeah, the the way that I was reading this answer, I think, uh, and maybe it's, it'll be common for students, is I wasn't even thinking about England anymore and what they're mm-hmm. doing to Scotland and Ireland. I'm just thinking about Scotland and Ireland going, okay, we're in Scotland and Ireland, labor laws are changing. Are they going to want to uh, be more efficient or, or right. are they going to want to outsource? Yeah, I got you. You were thinking about like from their perspective instead of the English perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, all right. That was a tricky one. Yeah. All right. Question 27. Is it me? Yeah, I think so. Okay. The passage most strongly implies which of the following? A, before the increases in efficiency at the turn of the 20th century, the average English worker was less productive than her American or European counterparts. B, prior to 1871, an English worker could face legal sanctions, fines, imprisonment, etc. for trying to organize a labor union. C, the majority of new factories set up in England and Ireland between 1850 and 1900 were set up by English owners seeking more favorable favorable labor conditions. Or D, prior to 1871, factories owners only ever utilized a single shift of workers. So the passage most strongly implies. So I'm going to start with D because there was a part where it talked about this multiple shift thing. Um... Where was that? It's in the second paragraph. Yeah, that's where I'm at now. So after this trade union act, uh, in response, employers began employing around the clock shifts for the first time in their production centers. And so prior to 1871, which is when this labor, uh, the trade union act was became into to being factory owners only ever utilized a single shift of workers. So that seems true. Um, but is that what the question is asking? Most strongly implies. Um, okay. So I, that one seems true. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep that there. 
before the increases in efficiency at the turn of the 20th century, the average English worker was less productive than her American or European counterparts. I don't think it ever really talked about that. It just talked about right now with all of these efficiencies, Europe is doing great or in- England is right. doing great. So I'm not going to pick that one. Uh, prior to 1871, an English worker could face legal sanctions for trying to organize a labor union. I don't know if it ever said what the worker could face other than in 1871, this law was passed to allow unions. Um, So I'm not going to pick that one. See, the majority of new factories set up in England, in Scotland and Ireland between 1850 and 1900 were set up by English owners seeking more favorable labor conditions. I think we just know, (laughs) unfortunately, in capitalistic capitalistic societies, the majority of owners are never trying to do anything for the labor. So so C is just always going to be false, unfortunately. Um, So D, I think, is the right answer. Yeah. So I I love how you went through that. The thing is, there's something about D that immediately... I, I like makes me run in the other direction. And that's the only ever, only ever. <laughs> ah, extreme right? language. Yeah. So they could have had, you know, like, let's say during Christmas one year, somebody had a double shift. Right. And then all of a sudden D doesn't work. And so D's are really extreme answer saying that they could only have ever done this. Um, but it did say for the first time in their production centers. Yeah. So for the first times they would, do like round the clock shifts. You, know, you still could have had like a double shift at some point at once, like at one time in the history of whatever. Um, okay. The, the correct answer here is actually going to be B, which is something that you latched onto as well, where it says that they like it, like legalized the formation of unions. And, and so if B said an English worker would face legal sanctions, I don't like that as much. But could that's that's a lot less extreme. That's very kind of like empty, wishy washy thing. And so, like, yeah, they they could have right that that could have been possible rather than they only ever would have done this for sure. Like that seems like a really extreme answer choice. Yeah. So I would say both B and D have some relevance to the passage itself. And so a lot of times students might pick like A or C if they're reasoning outside the text. And so if you're reasoning using the text, B and D feel right. B is less extreme. And so it's it's the correct answer. All right. Yeah. All right. I, I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I'm getting these wrong so students can learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's like a really interesting thing. You start to kind of like figure out what your specific like weaknesses. I would always go out of scope. So I, I, back in the day, I was the complete opposite of what you were doing. I would have picked those answers that had nothing to do with the passage because they're, they make sense. Yeah. Um, but that's not what the car section is trying to test. Yeah. Okay. So 28, the author would most likely be in favor of which of the following company policies? A, solving labor shortages through mergers and acquisitions of companies with large labor pools. B, outsourcing manufacturing to third world nations with no real labor protections. C, avoiding expenditures on improving machinery as an unnecessary cost. D, fiscal planning that seeks long-term advantages even when there are short-term costs. So this was covered and this just stood out to me because I um, am a nerd and, and like to, to, to think about this stuff. I think one of our current crises as a, as a country in business is that we have CEOs who are only 
going quarter by quarter and not thinking long term. And so it, yeah. it stood out very much where it, it talked about um, shareholders and financiers concerned about the next month rather than the next decade often discourage plant operators from making heavy upfront investments in changes to machinery and policy that would have allowed better production, even with reduced labor hours. To me, that sentence not only states a fact, but also seems like it's a judgment like this would have increased production and reduced labor hours or in and reduced labor hours so um especially when you look at the next sentence which is like despite these trends england still remained well ahead so you get the idea that the author didn't think that that was smart yeah um but they still did really well even though they're being stupid about this thing yeah. Um, and so answer choice D stands out fiscal planning that seeks long-term advantages, even when there are short-term costs. I, I think the author is saying like that should be the priority. Uh, it's not, <laughs> but it should be. So I, th- I think that would be the answer. And again, I, it only stood out because I have this background knowledge, which uh, unfortunately a lot of students may not understand. And, and so that sentence may not have stood out as much, but I, I don't even know if it's the right answer, but that's what stood out to me. Yeah, no, that that's the right answer for the right exact spot you were talking about. Um, the author doesn't give much opinion in the passage, but they do give it there, yeah. saying, you know, like, we did this, and despite these, we still were able to be very productive. Um, yeah, note that that last paragraph is really the only time where they talk about this. They also mention the, like, repressive laws that mm-hmm. made it difficult to form labor unions. So the author here is pro-union. Yeah. Um, but, you know, given that last paragraph. And so, yeah, the correct answer is D. All right. I got one. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. <clears throat> Question 29. Which of the following assertions is inconsistent with the facts as presented in the passage? So this is one of those, which of the following except, <laughs> right? Yes. Type uh, questions. We, we have to be careful of these traps here. So A, most upper class English citizens in the 19th century favored diversification as a means of coping with labor shortages. B, political movements designed to protect workers' rights had the effect of limiting the available labor pool. C, with increases in globalization, outsourcing has become a standard means of increasing available labor in the 21st century. D, for the last century, Scotland has had its own devolved parliament with which both permits and requires it to pass all of its own laws. Oh, <clears throat> so answer choice D, I don't know where it talked about at all <laughs> anywhere in here about Scotland having its own devolved parliament. Um, so they, they do talk about Scotland in like the third paragraph. Yeah. It's also one like I, I definitely would bring in my own outside knowledge on this thing. Um, and I got like I have to like fight that urge. Um. <sighs> oh, I don't know. Okay, so it just talks about why Scotland was and continues to be under the purview of the Parliament. The militancy militancy of labor movement activists was notably attenuated outside of London area. Um, but I don't know if that talked about requiring it to pass its own laws and all that stuff. So I'm going to skip that one because I don't really know. 
think I think there's a beginning portion of that sentence, actually. Where is that? So they're like, well, Scotland was and continues to be under the purview of the Parliament of the UK. Yep. That's the part I just read. Yep, sorry. Just like the first part of that sentence. I feel like that's showing that like Scotland exists under the Parliament of the UK. Um, and doesn't so they're have not its gonna, own devolved parliament. Yeah, they don't have their own parliament. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So that would be inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> is, so, that, is that the end? It's like, it doesn't make sense. So that's the answer. Yeah, um, yeah. This makes no sense. Wait, <laughs> deep, that makes it right. Um, yeah, because that's inconsistent with the passage. Scotland yeah. doesn't have its own parliament. Okay. It uses the UK's parliament. Yeah. And so you like immediately went to like the correct answer for that one. Yeah. But if you look at like a most upper class English citizens in the 19th century and the, the first sentence of the last paragraph since the dawn of the 20th century, more and more were moving towards efficiency, which means before they were doing diversification. Um, B, political movements designed to protect workers' rights had the effect of limiting the available labor pool. That's the entire second paragraph. Yep. Um, kind of led to these issues. Um, C, with increased globalization, outsourcing has become a standard means of increasing available labor. Um, they actually mention in the third paragraph, the usual diversification diversification path was what we would now call outsourcing, which means that, yeah, okay, that's a thing now when we call it outsourcing. Um, and so A, B, and C are all consistent with the passage. D doesn't make any sense because Scotland doesn't have its own parliament. Uh, so that's the correct answer. Yeah, last passage. I feel like that one, uh, you pre definitely preferred that one to the previous one. Um, not not quite as brutal. Not um, quite as brutal. Like, um, topic, like abstract. Yeah, I was I was able to follow along a little bit more. I didn't get all the questions right still, um, but that's again that's the whole point of cars is reading word by word by word and understanding everything that's being asked of you. And yeah, so it's even, like this constant being careful. Yeah, as it, well. This last question, I was I was thrown off with. I, I I knew right. Scotland is under England, and so this question or answer choice D. I'm like Scotland has its own devolved parliament. I'm like that just doesn't make sense. But I I wasn't getting it doesn't make sense with that's the whole point of the question. Which one of these is inconsistent? Um, right. And so I I was I was stuck there with that. And so that happens especially when the answer choices are kind of complex. When students get like sucked into the answer choices and they're like debating and they kind of forgot what the question was overall. Um, that happens a lot with yeah. students. Um, and it's definitely something you have to kind of like learn to get over. Other than that, you know, obviously like being really careful with that, like extreme language, where if you have something that could be true versus must be true, I don't like must, I don't like always, I don't like never, unless the passage itself has that extreme view, something like something could happen. That's way easier or something might happen. That's, that's a lot easier to pick as an answer choice. And that's something you like definitely learn over time. You see enough passages, like the moment you see must or only, I just immediately like, ah, don't like it, yeah. leaning away. All right, so there you have it. Another great episode, breaking down the cars section, passage five for you from Blueprint MCAT full length one. Again, you can get full length one for free by going to blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT podcast, where we're going to jump into MCAT timing. We'll take a little bit of a break from full length one as the MCAT registration dates are opening up. I want to talk with Phil about scheduling your MCAT. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT podcast. 
This is MedEd Media.